You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. So, okay, I'm on this mic now. Um, I hope you're enjoying the Nehemiah series. This week, we are looking at Nehemiah 9. Actually, we're just overlapping slightly with the end of chapter 8 as well. Um, Just to set the scene, I'm not sure about you, but um, for the first three years of marriage uh, for me and Shelley, we decided to not have a a TV in our relationship. Um, As we grew um, in our friendship together as a married couple, we didn't want a TV to be a distraction. Now, we did have things like iPlayer and other kind of movie stuff, but we didn't have a TV as in the channels. Now, recently, we've decided our marriage is strong enough to reintroduce the TV, which I'm particularly happy about, which has meant I've been able to explore some of the depth of channels which are available out there. You can play, play the, um, the video now. Um, one of the delightful programs that I've come across is ITV2, where animals do the funniest things. Which is crazy. I mean, you just don't know. You might be driving down the road, and along comes a rhino and wants to give you the horn. There we go. Um, now... Animal shows um, are are funny because animals do what animals do. You're just not quite sure what they're going to do next. (laughs) Lick your face. Um, (laughs) There we go. Um, Now, this got me thinking. What? Animals are funny, but you know what is even funnier? People. So I've got a pitch for my own TV show, which is rather than animals do the funniest things, it's people do The weirdest things. You see, the difference between a a person and an animal is an animal, a monkey is just being a monkey. It doesn't really know what it's doing there. But when people are weird, you kind of expect them to know what they're doing. They've got a conscience. So um, this is my pitch for a new TV show. You play the the next slide. Um, These are my top um, weird things in the world that people do. You see, my um, kind of premise for this is People are no more weirder when they're trying to be religious. So these are the um, whirling dervishes from Istanbul. You might have been on holiday there, and they do a show for you. Now, what's going on here? This is actually a a religious experience for this guy. He is twirling and dancing to get close to a a religious ecstasy, a spiritual ecstasy um, that they they long for. Um, If you put the next one up, this this is very weird. This is Mexico. What's going on here? This is the Day of the Dead, where you go and have a picnic on the gravestone of the people who've died in your family. bit weird, but um, you can kind of understand what they're trying to do there, trying to connect with the previous generation. We're getting weirder as we go through, if you haven't found out. Put the next one off. This one is called Land Diving, which is on the um, island of Vanatu. What's going on here is this guy has built this structure over a period of weeks and months, and he throws himself off the top of the structure with only some vines tied to his feet. They've kind of got a natural elasticity to them with the hope that he just grazes the ground as he comes down. I hope he measured that really well. Spain now. This is baby jumping. Oh, I can see the parents like, what is going on here? Well, in this, yeah, it's also called the, the devil's jump. What we've got here is this guy is dressed up as the devil. In Spain, the devil is yellow. And the babies underneath, he jumps over them to protect them from evil and illness in their life. 
quite hard to get your head around that one, isn't it? Finally, now this, this could be a bit squirmish, so you might want to look away if you don't. What's going on here? This is um, Thapsu Ham in India, the um, festival of Thapsu Zam. And um, the guy is having a spear put through his cheek and then his tongue. Um, this, uh, this is a way that they, they do a pilgrimage over this festival, and this is the, uh, the crowning moment in those days. So people can be way weirder than animals when we put our minds to it. Now, you might be thinking, Adam, what on earth has this got to do with Nehemiah? Well, I've called this talk, People Do the Weirdest Things, because we've got to a part in the story where they start to do some weird stuff. I'm trying to get our heads around, why are they suddenly being weird? Well, let me just recap. So Nehemiah was a man that um, was called by God to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He went to the king and he made a bold ask, give me the resources and give me the time off. I want to go and rebuild the city, uh, the city of God of my people. So he got the king's blessing. He goes there. He gets plans. He gets people. He starts to put all the order and process in place to build these walls. The walls go up. They're in teams. They've all worked together to build the walls. It's an incredible achievement. Nehemiah realizes it's not just about the walls. It's about repopulating the city as well. So we've heard about how he appoints leaders, how he gets resources in, how he, he gets musicians ready to, be in the, um, to worship God and do all of the logistical things to make sure that Jerusalem becomes the city of God once again. Pick up the story, which is what the people of um, God in Jerusalem at that point were doing, is a fearful and terrible thing. So they make their response the Feast of Booths, which is to make these um, homemade tents so that they can literally tabernacle with God, camp with God. They want to be near to God. But then the reaction of being near to God is to put sackcloth on and hearth on your head because you realize how far short of God's standard. There's a book that I read. And the way we do that is to realize we're not saved by the things we do, like living in a homemade tent out of palm leaves or putting dirt on your head and wearing a dustbin cloth. Uh, no, it's to see what Jesus has already done for you, to accept it and lie completely in that truth. Um, in other words, it has to start with God, not start with you. And helpfully, the author of Nehemiah has set this up for us. Because how, whoever wrote Nehemiah, how do they respond to this um, tent making and dirt on the head and sitting there, um, trying to get right with God, they then tell the story of God from start to finish. And that's what we're going to read now. When I say finish up to the point in the story, which is the exile. So Nehemiah 9 picks that up. We start at um, verse 6. This is quite long, but I want you to catch how God pursues us, how God pursues the people of God all the way through this story. You are the Lord alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens and all their host, the earth and all it is on it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Ab Abram and brought him out of Ur to the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. And you made with him a covenant to give you his offspring 
the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Prezerite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And then you have give, kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the mists of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty water. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them the holy Sabbath and commanded them the commandments and statutes and law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water out from a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into possess the land that you swore to give them. But they and our fathers accepted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And they, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made from themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples. And allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Shebon. And the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars in the heaven. You brought them into the land you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with the kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, You gave them into the hand of the enemy, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from them heaven, from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, 
who saved them from the land of their enemies. But they had, but they had rest. They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they could have dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, they, he shall live by them. And they turned, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the land of the prophets of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and the warnings that you give them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the, great, the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers, to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings from whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over the bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, the Levites and our priests. So, this is a massive chunk of scripture covering creation to the exile. Did you spot the theme? We let God down again and again and again and again and again and again. Yet every time the mercies of God are big enough to cover anything that we do. This isn't just a one-off thing that Nehemiah is living with. They did one thing wrong, so God says, Oh, get out of Jerusalem I'm going to bring an enemy that's going to take over. And he's just restoring one thing now in this story. No, it's a pattern that we've been going on since the dawn of creation. Now, they don't understand fully what's to come past the restoration of Jerusalem. But wow, we know that actually the pattern didn't stop there. The people of God continue to let God down and down and down. All the way until Jesus came. You see, it wasn't Nehemiah that got the people of God right with God. It wasn't living in a tent. It wasn't putting ash on your head. Ultimately, it was Jesus. So the pursuit of God through the ages hasn't stopped um, just with the Jesus. He's still pursuing you now. And as we let him down, that story, that linear line, up until when Jesus comes back and he claims the whole earth back for his own, 
We will continue to let God down, but now we know that Jesus is big enough, his grace is big enough to cover all things. I wonder if you can just put the timeline up. Um, you might have seen this slide before. Um, we believe that Nehemiah is um, between what we call the fall and redemption, a period of time where um, the earth, the relationship between God and the people of God had been um, torn in two. Um, we were looking forward to a day when the Messiah would come, where he would claim all things back as his home, and that was redemption. But we're still looking forward to a day that Jesus will come again and restore all things. So we're now living in that duality, uh, and that's why we call this the Nehemiah series a tale of two cities. We look forward to that day, but we work now in the present to make London the very best place that it can be. Um, this pursuit of God um, is the theme of the Bible that he does not give up, that he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And although we're weird and we try and come up with lots of creative ways to try and pursue him or our understanding of what God is, ultimately it has to start with him and it comes from top down. So let's have a little uh, look, a closer look at religion versus the gospel. Um, so religion are all those weird things that um, we do to try and connect with God. The gospel is God reaching down to us. Um, I wonder, okay, here, here's some statements. Um, religion versus the gospel. See if you resonate with any of these. So religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says motivation is based on the fear and insecurity. The gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe that, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle but I know that while God may allow for things like this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. The religion says, when I am criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Whereas the gospel says, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. My Christ, in Christ, I am at once sinful and lost, yet accepted. I am so bad, he had to die for me, and so loved, he was glad to die for me. This leads me to a deeper humanity, humility, as well as deeper confidence, without ever sniveling or swaggering. Religion says, my identity and self-worth based mainly on how hard I work nor how moral I am. So I must look down on all of those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. The gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need 
to win those arguments. Religion says, since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status. I absolutely have to have them. So they are my main hope, meaning happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I say, I believe about God. The gospel says, I have many good things in my life, family, work, etc. But none of these good things are ultimate to me. I don't absolutely have to have them. So there is a limit on how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. See the difference between religion, it's about me, whereas the gospel, it's about him. We all will have the mindset of religion from time to time. No one in this room has not thought some of those things which I read out. Yet the truth is, the gospel gives us the power to flip those on the head and to become the second version of what I read out. Religion is outside in, but when the gospel comes, it's inside out. So it doesn't merely change our behaviors, like in um, the story in Nehemiah, where they're driven to make those tents and to put dirt on their head. No, it changes from the inside out so that we are new creations, genuinely made new. Just one quick story to finish. And this, is this, this story was shared to me um, in the week. Um, it's about Ernest Shippen, who um, is famous for fish paste. Yes, fish paste. You may not have experienced the delights of fish paste or crab spread or some of the other delightful accompaniments that come as part of the Shipman brand. But I'd like to introduce you to the brand Shipman. So next time you're looking for a a delicious sandwich spread, you may consider Shipman. So Shipman um, was established... Shipman, 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 Shipman. We'll go with it, Shipman. Um, Shipman, Ernest Shipman was... um, going to have to just go with it, sorry. Um, Ernest Shipham, um, yeah, there we go, there we go. Um, he didn't found the company, no, he, um, he was alive um, in the 20th century. Um, he was one of the um, descendants of the original founders. And uh, Ernest Shipham had a um, dramatic encounter with God, which completely changed his life. As a young man, he was invited to a Billy Graham crusade at Wembley Stadium. Now, those of you that saw the England match last night, you can imagine what Wembley Stadium filled with 80,000 people would look like. I know it was the old Wembley Stadium back then. But this massive crowd of people gathered to hear the evangelist Billy Graham um, share the gospel. And Ernest was there. He was invited along. Um, And he was unaware of the purpose of this trip. And he found himself in the crowd at Wembley Stadium. And he writes like this. Then this man got up to speak. The whole stadium hushed. And the speaker was Billy Graham. Ernest was hypnotized. And the eloquence and the power of his delivery was unlike anything that Ernest had ever heard. They sat there in the stadium without saying a word to each other. Ernest's eyes were filled with tears. The stadium emptied, and Ernest and his friend just sat there. Eventually, they made their way back to Chichester, which is where he lived, 
um, more or less in silence together. The next day, the friend called at Shipham's house to speak to Ernest, only to find that he had gone out for the day. The following day, Ernest phoned the friend and said to him, words cannot express the appreciation I feel to you. You and Billy Graham have changed my life. At that time, this is now Ernest speaking, at that time, there were shameful things in my life which I seemed powerless to eradicate. My home was unhappy. Our business was my God. My church was merely the pattern of my social life. Events led me to hear Billy Graham at Haringey. All I can actually remember him saying was this, if Christ could carry his cross to Calvary for you, can't you trust him with everything that you have got? The Holy Spirit made me realize my need. In a flash, I saw what my life was like, and it was pretty rotten. And at that moment, seeing the tremendous love of Christ for me, he also filled my heart with such love and trust for him. That I committed all to him. It was an act of absolute and complete yielding to Christ. That young man, Ernest Shippen, eventually took over the chair of the company. He did so quietly and without fanfare. He amended the terms and conditions of the employees to reflect the company's responsibility for their ongoing welfare. He arranged for all employees to have free medical checks, ensured that the pension arrangements catered fairly for everyone. He gave vast amounts of money away for the gospel. There's some stories of him giving at some point 90% of the profits of the company to share the gospel with people. Years later, a newspaper reporter interviewed Mr. Ernest and the upshot of his question sought to discover why the company was so successful and the employees so contented. Ernest said to the reporter eventually, who do you think runs this company? Well, you do, of course, sir, said the reporter intriguingly with a nervous laugh. No, I do not. Ernest emphatically responded, this company is run by Jesus Christ. What takes a businessman that is so sought after money and power, he only goes to church for the social life and turns it on his head so he gives 90% of his fortune away, that he cares for the employees in such a way that there's such a dramatic difference and yet the company prospers beyond uh, what it ever was before. Well, that's the gospel. The gospel doesn't just change the outside, it changes the inside. So that story, I wanted to share that for a couple of reasons. The first one, Carols by Candlelight is coming up. Now, we might not have a Billy Graham, and we might not have a Wembley Stadium, but we've got a town hall, and we want to fill it with 400 people, and we're going to share the gospel with them in the context of Christmas. So who could you invite? And the shipman went there. He didn't even know what he was going to. He still thought, oh, an event at Wembley Stadium. I'm not saying hide what you're inviting people to, but have confidence that actually inviting people to a Christmas carol service is the very easiest invitation you could ever give because culturally it's just easy. It's easy to do that. The second one is maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm a bit like Ernest. I'm not sure I know the full extent of the gospel working in my heart. I understand what you've said over the last 25 minutes, but... It hasn't changed my heart. It's only changed my behavior. Then we're going to have an opportunity in the next uh, 20 minutes for you to respond. And you can become a Christian today. Um, we're going to share communion a little later on. Now, communion, you say, well, that's just being weird again, isn't it? Eating bread and wine. Well, 
Actually, it's okay to do some things to remind us of truths. But it's important to know we don't get saved through the bread and the wine. That is through Jesus. Um, So the band's going to lead us now in a time to respond. Just think about how religion and the gospel are within your life. And if you want to respond at the end, that, that would be great.